Hi, everyone. It's good to be here again. My name is Matthew, or Father Matthew, and uh, I was here last week. It's uh, been a pleasure and a, a, a real gift to get to be with you a number of times uh, in the last few months. I love this place. I love this community. And as you may know or probably do know, uh, Foster, uh, Foster, Father John and Mother Jana are out of town. He's on sabbatical, and so he's bringing in um, a whole bunch of people from the bullpen. And so I am uh, grateful to be a relief pitcher today um, at this wonderful church. You, you, uh, if you've been with us through the summer, you know that we are spending the summer in the readings that come from Genesis. So the lectionary, you know, it sets a, it apportions readings for every, every Sunday. And right now we're just in Genesis. And normally we, we hang out in the Gospels. But instead, we've been hanging out with this person, Abraham, for three weeks now. And as you heard today, these two wonderful kids, as, as Malcolm and Davis read to us, we are still with uh, Abraham. In fact, this is really the final, the final culminating moment of his life. This is the, the place where, in some ways, all the threads of his life come together in a single excruciating moment. And out of this moment, all these threads shoot out into the rest of the Bible. And in fact, when you understand Genesis 22, 1 to 14, you really understand the heart of the rest of the Bible. So it's, it's pretty important. Well, one, one instance of how this shows up is that the location itself where this, this story takes place is a sacred space, Mount uh, Moriah or Moria or uh, however, I'm not sure how we're supposed to say it. This becomes the Temple Mount. This becomes the mount in the center of Jerusalem where the temple is, 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 is built, where Solomon builds the place upon which thousands and thousands and millions and millions of lambs will be slaughtered on the same location where Isaac was bound 2,000 years before. Now, the rabbis call this story, they call it the Akedah, and that's because it's the Hebrew word for binding. It is the culmination of Abraham's life, and it is a story that is also considered by many to be a high point in ancient literature. It is beautiful, it's poetic, it's unlike a lot of the Abrahamic story. It moves in slow motion. There's, there's a lot of balance to it. I, I could go on and on about the structure of it and all that stuff, but we really don't have time, and it's kind of boring probably for most of you. But it, it is a, it's a tremendous, exquisite piece of literature. And yet, the thing about it that probably most of us notice is not, my, how beautiful, my, how exquisite the, the poetry is. But instead, what a terrible and horrible story this is. What a confusing, devastating story this is. How do we understand this story in light of the God that we sing to? How do we respond to the God who commands something uh, like this? And so I, I want to I wrestle with those things with you today. Um, I want to do it knowing that we have a bunch of kids in here today, which is awesome. They probably were very confused earlier when I tried to push them out the door, and instead they just stayed, which they should have stayed because kids are in here this Sunday. This is a place in which we learn what it is to be faithful followers of God. We are people who learn to wrestle with the hard things of God and lean into the goodness of God. And, and this story, I think, is the perfect picture of how, how you do that. So I want to look at it under three headings. We're going to look first at uh, that there is a God who tests. Second, we're going to look at the horror of the trial. And then thirdly, we'll look at the God who provides. So first, the God who tests. The, the, the text opens up with these words. And after all these things, <clears throat> the Lord tested Abraham. Now, after all these things is vague. It's not clear what these things are, but let's just think about what we've talked about for three weeks now. What are the things that have happened to Abraham? Well, 35 years ago or so, 40 years ago, 
God out of the blue came to Abraham and Abraham had no understanding of the, of the God of the Bible. There was no Bible at this point. He was just one person living out in Ur. And the, the God of the Bible comes to him and calls him and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And in order to do this, you're going to have to leave your homeland and leave your ancestral space and leave your family and leave everyone you've ever known and go off into a place. And I'm not even going to tell you where you're going. I'm just telling you to leave. And so Abraham leaves. He gets up and he leaves. He follows faithfully. And then he is told he's going to have a son and that he's going to, out of the son is going to come a great nation. And then he waits for 25 years. Some of you aren't even 25 years. He's waited for 25 years for this son. And finally the son is born. And then shortly after that, about 14 years after that, he is told to kick out of his house his, his firstborn son, which was conceived with his, uh, his wife's uh, slave, Hagar, and after all of these things, now it says God is testing Abraham. <laughs> so everything up to this point has gone pretty easily. I mean, it's really been a pretty simple life. Um, this, is, this is an important word, though, because the, the Hebrew word, Nassah, um, which is where we get our space program name from, this word uh, is not, it does not mean to lead a person into temptation. It doesn't mean that. What it means is instead to, to put someone in a trial in which the nature or the, the, the character of their heart will emerge. In other words, it's like the crucible that God is putting Abraham in so that something can come out of Abraham that would not come out otherwise. The sort of thing that only is visible after great pressure is applied to it. And so you could say that this test from God is a great kindness, that what God is doing here is incredibly kind. And yet, we would be fair to say, and I think any modern person would say, yeah, but it doesn't seem that kind. I mean, maybe that's true, but Abraham doesn't know this. All he knows is that he has now been told um, to, to kill his last remaining son. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, literally just two paragraphs before, he's kicked uh, Ishmael out of the house, and now he's told to kill uh, Isaac. And so it seems like in a single page of Scripture, God is undoing 40 years of promise. Just eradicating the whole thing. Now this test to, to sacrifice his son, to us it seems absolutely barbaric and disgusting, and to be clear, it is. In the ancient Near East, though, it wasn't. And this isn't like meant to be a cop-out. This is like, you can't really judge it. You know, he was a man of his times. He sacrifices kids. Everyone sacrificed their kids. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we can understand this story in the context in which it is given to us, which is the ancient Near East and especially the Canaan, Canaanite cultic religions, which did actually engage regularly in child sacrifice. And you have to remember something about the faith of Abraham. So Abraham was the first Jew. He was the father of the Jewish faith. He was the founder of what scholars would call Yahwism, the, the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. He didn't know any of this. He was a Canaanite. He was, he, he was a Mesopotamian. He, had a, he, had, he was the first baby Jew. He didn't have the book of Leviticus. He didn't have any worship practices. Moses was 500 years in the future, at least. And so he has no sense of what it means to worship this God. So everything he's doing in his life, every time you see Abraham, and then he built a shrine, and then he set up an altar, and then he performed a sacrifice. That's not because he was Jewish. That's because that's how you worship gods in Canaan. All he's doing is following what everyone around him is doing in the worship of their gods. And it was no mystery that in this part of the world at this time, and actually in most parts of the world, it was, a, it was standard to assume that in order for gods to be appeased, they required the blood of children. 
It's terrible and disgusting, and yet it's absolutely normal. And, and for Abraham, what this, what this moment was, was a recognition for him, oh, I guess this God is like every other God. I guess that really, like, I haven't had this unique experience with a different kind of God, that all along, he's just been waiting to finally, you know, here's the other shoe is dropped. You know? And probably some of us feel that way about God ourselves. Feel like, oh, this is, this is what it's like. Oh, that's right, that's right. When the other shoe drops and we discover that God is not who we hoped he was. And this is what Abraham has. Now, this becomes, of course, the defining moment where the God of Abraham differentiates himself from the rest of the gods of Canaan. He does not require the blood of Isaac, and in fact, he provides a, a, a substitute. But Abraham doesn't know that. Abraham doesn't know that this test is going to result in him getting everything he could ever want for, including his son back. And at the end of the test, it's not even a part of our text this week, but God doubles down and he affirms again everything that he swore to Abraham. He says, it will happen. I swear it by myself. This is the, this is the moment in Abraham's life. This, this is Charlie Bucket putting the, 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 the gobstopper on the desk of Willy Wonka. He thinks he's just like, I guess I'm giving up the gobstopper in fame and fortune. And actually he's about to get in the great glass elevator. And that's what we're reading is happening to Abraham. He is actually about to receive everything he could ever hope for in life. Now, I think it's an, un an uncomfortable thing for you and me to wrestle with, but if we've walked with Jesus for any length of time, and I know a number of you here have, you've probably figured out that there are going to be, as a part of that walking with Jesus, times and seasons in which you're going to feel in which there are trials and maybe even tests that are being put on you that God could at the very least alleviate. He could remove or lift them. Sometimes we feel like instead actually God is causing these things in our life. They often feel like a thing that if God just simply chose, he could break through and break the pattern in a minute. Jesus teaches us in the prayer that we're all gonna pray together in a few minutes that we should pray every time we pray to God, lead us not into temptation. Now, Jesus' theology is not wrong. He is understanding that what we experience as human beings is that God leads us into times of trial, times that feel like they're crushing us, times that feel unfair. And he, we actually pray weekly, God, would you please spare us from a time of trial? Would you spare us from this? Um, so I was thinking, you know, this, this week, two years ago, I was on St. Simon's Island with my family, and um, it was a last-minute trip. Someone in our church, uh, the trip, they had had it planned with their family. Something fell through at the last minute. It was really sad, but they said, I can salvage this. I can give it to Matthew and his family, and it was the greatest gift ever. We got to go to the beach, and it was super sweet. I know, it's a pastor perk. You know, it's like, when, you know, it's like, you don't have to wear weird clothes and stuff, but you get to go to the beach sometimes. And the, anyway, so we were at St. Simon's Island, and what had been happening, so this is like summer 21, and what my wife and I had been watching for about the previous three to four months is that one of our kids had been really struggling, like in, in real ways, and what became really clear when we were at the beach that week is that like one of my kids was not well that she was, she was struggling terribly with a lot of things and that these things, I didn't know this at the time, but these things, these were the first days of a season that would end up radically altering my life and my whole family's life and a whole bunch of other things as well. And for the next 18 months, basically, my daughter and wife spent about, well, almost all of it in hospitals. They were in three cities around the country. They were in multiple uh, clinics and, 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 and medical treatment spaces. And, and it was, it was, I was home with the three kids and my church basically, basically put me on leave for a year. And they're like, you need to take care of your kids. And, and this whole time, um, it just felt like this, this is something God could fix, right? You ever have one of those things? This is something God could fix. 
And I remember going into my daughter's bedroom every morning because she was in the hospital and I would go and I would sit on her bed and I would open my Bible because, you know, trying some, to hold on to something. I'm opening my Bible and I, my mentor taught me to do this back when I was in high school. I would hold her picture and I'd pray over her. I still do this every day. I have all my kids and my wife and my Bible and they have different sections and I pick up their picture and I pray over them. And I would sit on her bed and I would pray over her. And I would just every day, I'd be like, God, I don't understand why this, why this is dragging on. You could fix this in a second. And I would remind God, this is what the Bible tells us to do. I would remind him of how good he's been in the past. I would remind him of all the times he's come through for us and all the times that it felt like it was hopeless and he's emerged anyway and he's shown up in a big way. And I would be like, you're like this. I know you're the God who does this. And why won't you do this in this instant? Now I can say today, uh, two years later, that God answered those prayers. It took him a very long time. You know how long it feels when you're just sitting in the pressure cooker? It feels like it's going on forever. Every second is so slow. Every day is just so slow. All if you walk with Jesus for any length of time, you're going to experience some kind of season where you're like, you could stop this. You, you don't have to do this this way. You don't have to tell me to give up my son in this way. You don't have to ask these things of me. You are a God of gracious promise. You are a God who could do things a different way. And yet, this is a part of what it means to follow God. Now, I would also say it's a part of what it means to be a human being. Christians just have a different lens through which we understand these things. It's not that like people outside the church have easy lives and never experience suffering. It's just that when you're inside the church and you're walking with Jesus through it, you understand it from a different vantage point because you do know that he's the God that stands outside of tombs and says, Lazarus, come out. So you do know he has the capability at any point to do something incredible, and yet he chooses instead to stand there with you and weep rather than call the dead to life. So this is the test that God gives to Abraham. And I would imagine that some of you in here right now are going through a test. You're going through a dark season, a trial that you don't understand. You don't have the end of it. You're not sure there will be an end of it. Sometimes there's not an end of it. Sometimes it's chronic pain or chronic illness that follows us all the way to the grave. Sometimes it's financial situations that are never resolved. Sometimes it's, it's relational things that never heal. Sometimes it's, it's it, whatever it is, it just goes on and on and on and we can't get free of it. And that just becomes part of our life. Maybe it's depression and we're just plagued by darkness and depression inside our heart and our mind our whole life. And no matter how much medicine and talk therapy we do, it just lives there and dominates our view of life. And these things can become for us trials, pressure places, places where we wonder, why aren't you doing something about this, God? Now, the second thing we see in this story is not just that God is a God who tests, but that the horror, the, the trial that he gives to Abraham is a horrible trial. And this is what makes it horrible. You say, I know what makes it horrible. He's asked to kill his son. That is horrible, but that's not even the worst thing about what's going on here. On the surface level, we say, of course, God saying murder your son is, of course, a terrible, disgusting thing. And every time the Bible speaks about child sacrifice, to be clear, it says it's an abomination. So it's not like sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's understandable. It's like, no, it's always an abomination to sacrifice your child. God is not pleased by this. But the fact for Abraham was not even just that he was losing his son, but that with the loss of Isaac would come toppling down on him everything that he had built up to understand about the universe in which he lived. You know what I'm talking about here? Because he had grown up and spent 75 years in a land of brutal, demanding, bloodthirsty gods. And then he was surprised and delighted at the ripe old age of 75 that God would come along to him and not demand blood, but instead offer promise. And then make a covenant with him and swear by his own blood, God's own blood, that he would be faithful to that covenant. And then come through for God, for Abraham on that. And now it seems that God is saying, not only am I requiring your son, but everything was a lie. 
None of it was real. And can you imagine for a minute, if you imagined or if you thought suddenly and believed in the truest part of your soul that you live instead of a good and gracious universe in which a benevolent, kind, all-knowing, all-loving God is working all things together for his good purposes, instead a hostile, demanding universe in which an indifferent God capriciously asks things of us that are not fair in any way. And what that would mean for us, like how afraid we would live, like how little confidence we could have in anything, because we'd always be looking over our shoulders, because we would always assume that whatever could happen that's bad is right around the corner. And Abraham is, is essentially reaching a place where he's recognizing that the two gods he has met cannot be the same God. One of them has to be truer than the other. And this is what the reformers understand is the central tension of the text. Calvin says that these two, the God of promise and the God of judgment, cannot be the same God. And Abraham's wrestling with this. Luther says it this way. I mean, he's so weird. He says, this is the contradiction with which God contradicts himself. I'm not even sure what he means by it. He's just a weird guy. This Akeda, it brings together all the major plot lines in Abraham's life in which he'd been promised that a single, through a single heir, that a great nation would come and bless the world. And that single heir was Isaac. And now he's being told, apps, actually, no. Actually, the one upon which you have placed your hope cannot be trusted. The horror of the trial is that it seems at this point that we, in fact, live in a hostile and unforgiving universe. And yet, God comes through, right? He is the God who provides. Now, to be really fair, I think it's kind of hard to like get super excited about how gracious God is when he comes through in rescuing Abraham from a test that he puts Abraham through like holding a person underwater until they're almost drowning and then pulling them up and saying, aren't I a great guy? It's a little hard to be like, that is a great thing. You are a good God. So it's hard to say like, oh, well, God ends up looking really good in this story. He still, I think through modern eyes especially, still ends up looking kind of bad. What kind of God does this? No one made God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son. God chose this. He did it because he wanted something to come out of Abraham, something that would be gold. But the cost of it, Think about the therapy Abraham would need on the other side of this. And yet we see in this that he is a God who provides. Which is he? Is he the God of impossible commands or the one who graciously delivers us from them? Well, what Abraham models for us in this text is not blind obedience to the craziest command is what it means to follow God. That's, not, that's what sometimes people preach from. It. And they come out, no matter what it is, and if God asks you to give everything to the church, and by the way, you should, if he asks you to give everything to the church, then you should obey if you're gonna love God. That's what it means. And that's how some people take this text. And I just wanna say, that's not what Abraham models for us here. It's not what he models for us. In fact, what he does model for us is something that you, it is a word for you and me today, and it doesn't have to do with any of us going home and killing our offspring. Thanks be to God. This is what one of the great things about the Bible is when it talks about itself. I love it. So Hebrews talks about this text. And we have this on the screen. Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, he offered up Isaac, who he had received, who had received the promise, was ready to offer up his only son, of whom it had been told, It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named after you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. From the dead. This is an incredible, incredible insight into what's going on in Abraham's mind here because the cynic in me is walking up the Mount of, of Moriah with a sword and fire and I'm, and I'm angry and I'm bitter 
and I'm grumbling, and I'm saying, how could you? But what we see Abraham is doing is he's walking up the Mount of Moriah, trembling, no doubt, but saying also under his breath, I don't know how you're gonna do it, but I know you are a God of promise. I don't know how you're gonna come through this time. I, th- I feel painted into a corner, but I do believe you are a God of promise. Dallas Willard used to say often something that I, I love and need to hear a great bit, a great deal. He said, never believe anything bad about God. Now, he doesn't mean by that never ever have a single thought that might be like, why are you like this? He doesn't mean that. He's like, don't let these things dwell in you long enough that they become part of your, your, your heart. Don't let, them shape, don't let them shape everything about how you see God. And here's why he says that. It's not because he's like, we have to protect God. We don't want to think bad things about him. He's kind of touchy. You know, that's not it. He's saying what we all know, and that is the thing that we believe about a person, we end up, we end up confirming. It's what's called confirmation bias. We all do it. It's why, it's why you listen to the news you listen to, because it confirms your biases. It's why you listen to the podcast. We might sometimes, we might dabble on the other side, so we try to feel a little bit of balance, but we never actually learn from the other side. We just sit in judgment over them and talk about how ridiculous they are to think these things. We don't actually ever li- learn from the other side. We go over there like, oh, how stupid are they to think these things? Let me go back to the people who tell me I'm smart. And we do this all the time. Now, I was listening to NPR the other day, and I probably just confirmed some biases you have about me, but I was listening to NPR the other day, and I heard this story at the tail end about confirmation bias, and I, I have no idea the origin of it, but it was fascinating because he said, this is the deal about confirmation bias. We all do it. You do it. So what if we used it for good? What if we leveraged the power that all of us have over to shape our brain to think good things about other people as opposed to ill? And he gave the example that is an easy to understand example if you're married in here, which is if you assume that your partner is ultimately more concerned with themselves and more selfish than they are concerned about the marriage, you will find evidence for that everywhere and every left dish and sock on the floor every time the gas tank is empty and they had the car last there will always be reasons to say I knew it they're selfish and they don't care about our union there will always be evidence of these things he says but what if instead you have believed about them what you hope they believe about you that they actually are as committed to this as you are that they actually love you but they are imperfect Like, what if we use that? And let's get outside of marriage, because that's too narrow. It only applies to some of us in the room. What if we did that with our friends? What if we did that with the people? We just naturally, we are are predisposed oftentimes to sort of think the worst about certain people. And he says, what if instead we, we changed that so that our biases were towards good? They would still be confirmed, because that's what happens to your bias. It will be confirmed. And what does that have to do with this? We live in an age in which cynicism towards God, and really cynicism towards all in authority and power is the posture, it's the orientation. In fact, sociologists have noticed this. They've seen since Watergate, we blame everything on Nixon. Since Watergate, there has been a dramatic and obvious shift in in the society's trust of people in power, in government, people with great uh, financial wealth. We are just predisposed to distrust anyone with power. Now, friends, do you really think that that isn't seeping into your view of God? Do you really think it's possible for you to distrust anyone who has power over your life and not believe also that maybe God isn't all he claims to be? Of course it is. Which is where Willis, uh, Willard's comment comes to us. And he says, this is what we must do. Look, I don't care what you believe about the Republican or the Democratic Party, truly, but you must never believe anything bad about God. 
Because when we do, it sows into our soul the thing that will in time be confirmed. I um, naturally listen to people, probably too many people, who tell me that my faith is silly. I'm too engaged probably in social media and things that are going to confirm for me that being a Christian today is just too out of step with modern understanding of psychology and science and history and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that we put our head in the sand. God knows I would never say that. But at the end of the day, we choose. We choose what we walk up the mountain of Moriah with. What's in our heart. And one of them will lead to life. And one of them will lead to bitterness and coldness. And I know that in this room right now, there are people, because I'm one of them, there are people who are predisposed to the, to the bitterness way. And I just sense God fighting for us in this text through Abraham to say, there is a way to have to do impossible things and still believe the best about God. To be asked to put up with anything and still believe the best about God. Of course, in the end, our issue with a God who seems to speak out of both sides of his mouth ends up running into the proverbial wall of his own son laying on the altar. 2,000 years after Isaac is laid down on the altar, within bowshot of this location, Jesus, the Son of God, is laid down on a cross. And whereas Abraham was stayed, the centurion's hand is not. And Jesus is not bound with ropes, but with nails. In the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, Jesus asked, Father, is there any other way? The fire and the wood we have, but where is the lamb? Is there a substitute? Is there another way? And the Lord in his silence answered the son, I will provide. And this is the provision. This is the story that points directly and leads us right to the foot of the cross. Jesus is the ram in the thicket. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On the mountain of the Lord it is provided, and the provision is God's Son himself. Perhaps one of the reasons this story is in the Bible is because it gives us an insight into the heart of God the Father as he watched his Son be tortured and killed. It's there to remind us that in the Passion and in Abraham we see it's about love, about sacrifice, about anguish, of giving up those who you care about most for others. This son also would have wood laid on his back. He would also be led up a hill to sacrifice. He would also be bound, but he would die. Jesus once said to his Jewish religious critics, your father Abraham, because we're always quoting Abraham to him, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was glad to see it. And of course, they get in a squabble. They're like, you're not even 40 years old. What do you mean? Jesus is saying, Everything that Abraham had been living for and waiting for has now come to completion and fruition in me, Jesus. And if Abraham had been standing at the base of Mount Calvary with Mount Moriah in behind him, he would have been able to look at the Father and say what the Father had said to him on that day. Now I know that you love me, since you have not withheld from me your son, your only son whom you love. And this is what we have to choose to work into our souls 
when we find ourselves predisposed to cynicism and anger and frustration, when we find ourselves wrestling with God, and listen, friends, you, if you know anything about me, you know that one of my life's messages is that wrestling with God is the birthright of everyone born who is an Israelite. That's what Israel means, a God wrestler. It's why we sing every week songs like we just sang, How Long, How Long. That song, that cry, that ancient why is at the seed of what it means to be a faithful follower of God. And yet, as we work at the Psalms, you see Psalm after Psalm after Psalm, How Long. You shake the robe of God and you say, Why are you this way? And you end almost every Psalm with, But I will choose once again to lay down before you and trust you. I don't know how you're going to do it this time, God. You're going to have to raise him from the dead. There's no other way out of this. But I know you are a God who keeps his promise because you are for us. And as Paul says, laying, using this own imagery, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with Christ Jesus give us all things? Amen. Um, let's take a minute and silence our hearts. We're gonna to prepare to come to this table, this table that is a reminder of this sacrifice, of the body that was laid on the cross, of the blood that poured from the wounds. But before we get there, I would just love to invite you, just in the spirit of what we were talking about today, think, just take it, maybe think about this past week. Where have I been predisposed, predetermined to think the worst about God? What are the parts of my heart that I am critical or I'm cynical, angry. What would it mean to just in this moment to just give those to God? Say, I don't know how you're gonna do it, but I'm gonna trust you. Lord, I don't know what it means for any one of us in this room, including myself, to, you know, metaphorically lay an Isaac on the altar but I, I do know what it means for me, and I think probably many of us can figure out what it means to walk up the mountain to that altar with hope and to be in the midst of things that feel endlessly dark and yet to hold on to hope. When darkness seems to veil his face, I trust on his unchanging grace. Or as William Cooper writes in God Moves in Mysterious Ways, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God, we trust in your smile even in the midst of darkness. That you are, in the end, the God of promise. And so we lean into you. In the name of Jesus, amen.